Psalm 4, if you'll turn there in your Bibles, last Wednesday evening, obviously as we weren't here together, I uh, did the recording to begin our study in the book of Psalms. If you didn't get a chance to listen to that yet, it's available on the church uh, podcast because obviously I addressed a couple introductory things as well regarding the book of Psalms and some of the things that we'll be seeing and looking at in this uh, great Jewish hymn book as it really is, uh, one of the books of poetry in the Bible uh, where the Holy Spirit directs different individuals, whether it's David or a few of the other writers, human authors that we have uh, of the Psalms, really just describing all different varied experiences that we go through in life, uh, whether it's the, the pits and the valleys and depression and discouragement or anger and frustration or whether it's the mountain peaks of you know, joy and being, you know, grateful and excited and enthusiastic about the Lord. I mean, there's just a huge range of human emotion and really every form of life experience that's described all throughout the writings of the Psalms. They really are sort of just a diary of the devotional and spiritual experience that these different individuals were just expressing in poetic form, whether it's in prayer, in song, and so forth. And so in that way, they become a great place in the Bible, I think, for us to learn a lot about worship, to learn a lot about seeking the Lord, about prayer. And sometimes I think the Psalms are a really great antidote if you're even struggling in your prayer life. Sometimes I've encouraged people if they're having a struggle with their prayer life. I found for myself and encourage others as well. Sometimes if you're struggling, just go to the Psalms and just start reading one of the Psalms, two of the Psalms, three of the Psalms. And so doing, as you read them or even read them and articulate them out loud, they are in essence spirit-inspired prayers. And sometimes they become a great launching pad to help facilitate getting us praying. If we're struggling with praying, we could just use the very Psalms that are there as a way to start praying and talking to God. They're very helpful in that way. So as we come to Psalm 3, or excuse me, Psalm 4, Uh, We get another psalm written by David, and like Psalm 3, it seems Psalm 4, somewhat of a companion psalm, seems to be some uh, real comparative things. It could be that in this time, David is still dealing with some of the things expressed in Psalm 3, where we're told the backdrop there was the time when his son Absalom had rebelled against him when David was on the throne, and again, so just this real hurtful experience where David, having a family member, one of his own sons, who turned against him, led a rebellion. Remember, the Bible tells us uh, that Absalom was stealing away the hearts of the people, and he was dishonoring his father. But more than that, he was basically causing division among the kingdom at that time. He was putting David's life and future in jeopardy and causing a lot of distress and difficulty for David. And certainly, you can understand the hurt that would be personally and emotionally to David to go through that being wounded by someone in his life deeply, as well as just all the complications and the circumstantial problems that it was causing David and the range of emotions that he would be feeling through those very things. As he described back in Psalm 3, how there are many who were troubling him and rising up against him. And it could be, again, we're not certain that Psalm 4 is, again, just a little bit more expression of David as he's processing maybe some anger, some hurt, Uh, some of the stress and difficulty that he's gone through, whatever is happening, we can tell he's going through some difficult times for sure. Again, it tells us here, beginning in Psalm 4, verse 1, 
David starts out by saying, Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. He says, Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. So as David begins this psalm, notice he starts out in direct communication to God. Verses 1 Uh, excuse me, verse one there, he's communicating to God. When he gets to verse two and three, it seems he kind of then begins to express his feelings towards other people, almost in the form of communicating to others. And then when he gets to verse four, maybe five, it almost seems then he's kind of doing some self-talk and he's actually kind of communicating with himself and trying to encourage himself and Uh, David does tend to do this a lot. We find in the Psalms where there are times where David kind of almost is speaking to himself. And I guess it's okay to talk to yourself or ask yourself questions. David will say in Psalm 42, why are you downcast? Oh, my soul, hope in God. And so sometimes we we need to kind of commune within ourselves. But the first thing we find David doing in the midst of his difficulties, and we can tell from the Psalm he's in a difficult time, is he just turns his heart to the Lord. And look, that is always the the, the best place to begin, whether someone has hurt you deeply, and that could be the case here, that David's dealing with the pain and anguish in his heart of the family rift between him and his son Solomon, Uh, whether it's circumstantial difficulties in your life, times you're going through hardship, the best thing to do, honestly, is to avoid, first of all, talking to other people, Now, unfortunately, that tends to usually be our first line, right? You hurt me. Then the first line of defense is I need to tell other people what you did to me or we need to post it on social media or we always tend to kind of gravitate towards telling everyone else our problems or what happened to us or what somebody did to us. And we have a a natural tendency to do that first. Or we do the other thing, which we're going to see David do in verse four and five, is we just start talking it through to ourselves and we kind of start you know, mulling over our own frustrations and angers and we're thinking things through when the reality is the first thing we ought to do always in any difficulty, whatever the form of it, is we need to just go directly to God and just start talking to God first and foremost. And that's what we find David doing. He cries out. He says, hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. I like how David here gives this beautiful title to God. He calls him the God of my righteousness. In other words, God, you are the one who does what is right for me. You are the one who proves out my righteousness when someone is accusing me of things maybe that I haven't done. God, you know that I am righteous in your sight and I haven't done what I'm being falsely accused of or I'm being mistreated unfairly in this situation But even as David calls him the God of my righteousness, again, he's thinking about his own standing of being right before the Lord, despite how others may be treating him or relating to him in this time in his life. And certainly that is exactly what God is, honestly, for all of us and all the more in regards to what he's done for us through our relationship with him through Jesus Christ, is he is the God of my and your righteousness if your faith is in Christ. And that's huge. Because that means that you and I have a standing that is right before God in a judicial sense where we can approach God and and God listens to us. We can have access to God. And the reason for that being available to us is because there is a righteousness that comes from God that is given to us through the finished work of Jesus Christ and our trust and confidence in that. 
Romans chapter 3 speaks all about this very reality quite in depth where it talks about not having our own righteousness, but receiving the righteousness of God. In other words, in order for a person to truly be right before God, you can't offer to God your own righteousness, your own religious works, your own moral standing, your own good behavior. You and I have to humbly receive the righteousness of God himself. God gives us a righteousness through Jesus, whereby he justifies us and makes us right in his sight judicially by giving to us as a gift his own righteousness so that we can then approach him in a way where we have his acceptance and come correctly to him. And and David here beautifully calls him the God of my righteousness. And if your trust is in Christ, that's exactly what he is. He is the God of your righteousness, which gives you a right standing before God. And in light of that, he speaks about how God has heard his prayer. He says, verse one, hear me. And then again, verse one, have mercy on me and hear my prayer. So he's crying out to God to listen, to have mercy upon him in a situation. And I love how in verse one, he says, God, you are the one who has relieved me in my distress. I like that language there. You have relieved me in my distress. Have you ever gone through a time in your life where you found yourself in distress? under a great amount of pressure or just really stressed out, or you were just under something where you were really distressed, not knowing what was going to happen. You're feeling overwhelmed. You know, you're, you're just finding yourself just greatly anxious or concerned, and you're very distressed about something. And the Lord, as you cry out to him in prayer, he comes and he intervenes and he relieves you. Notice it doesn't say you've relieved me from the difficulty. But he says, you've relieved me from my distress. (laughs) The idea is, Lord, you may not have taken away the problem. You may not have changed the circumstances. Those things sometimes may still remain, but God mercifully intervenes whereby he relieves us from the distressing feelings, the distressing thoughts, the hardships that we're going through mentally and emotionally so that we can have peace to be able to continue to function without being overwhelmed by those things. Verse two, he then goes on to say, how long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? The idea is, will you continue to try and tarnish my relationship? He says, you you continue to try and turn my good relationship into something which is shameful to disgrace me. He says, how long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood so again it seems that this is what the people who were troubling him were doing to him they were seeking that which was false again false accusations they were saying untrue things about david that were fabricated and weren't realistic and he says how long are you going to continue to do these things interesting that he says to those who do not know and serve the lord how long will you love worthlessness Again, how many things in this life do people love and treasure that are completely worthless? Uh, I mean, boy, you look at humanity apart from the Lord. You look at where we were apart from the Lord. And so many of the things that we devoted ourselves to and that we cared about were completely vain and worthless. And how wonderful to be on the other side of that, to have our eyes open, to realize, Lord, I can love those things now that matter, that are real, that actually have some weight and substance to them, that I don't got to spend my time being devoted 
to worthless things. David here says, how long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? He says, verse three, but know that the Lord has set apart for his own special purpose for himself, him who is godly and the Lord will hear when I call to him. So he's kind of proclaiming there his confidence in the midst of these things. He says, look, make sure that you're aware of this. You may come against me, but he says that I know that God is for me for he has set apart for himself those who are godly. That is those who live in a way that is in right relationship with God. And that's really what in essence the word godly means. Godliness or to be godly, the idea there is is to be in right relationship with God. And he says those who are living in right relationship with God, irregardless of what others are doing to them, they have been set apart by the Lord. That is his protection, his preservation in a unique way is with them because they are living in a way of right relationship with the Lord. And David says here, look, despite what you do to me, I know the Lord is going to hear me when I call to him. I know that he'll come to my rescue, that he's going to come to my aid. He has relieved me in my distress before. And he says, despite what you do to come against me, I know He says that the Lord's going to hear when I call him. And what a wonderful assurance that we are not treated in any way differently than David was. That God's not a God of partiality. And you and I can have confidence in the same thing, that the Lord will hear when we call to him. The question is, are we going to just complain about things? Or are we going to tell others about things? Or are we truly going to call upon the Lord in our times of distress and in our times of difficulty? That's the part that we have to learn to do, to learn how to rely upon God and live dependently upon him because then we can have confidence that the Lord is gonna hear when we call to him whatever it is that we have need of. Verse four, it seems now he starts to try and process what's happened in his own life by kind of trying to kind of guide and counsel himself to not over-respond just in the strong emotions that he was feeling in the midst of his difficulty. He says, verse four, be angry, and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. So here David speaks about the value of responding wisely when we find ourselves struggling with the honest, genuine emotion of anger. And and listen, take notice. Here, the Bible, the Holy Spirit inspiring David says, be angry. When you get to the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 4, you find a companion to this very verse right here. There in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, be angry and sin not. In other words, it is wrong for us to have this false view that somehow that to be angry at times is wrong or sinful. And sometimes as Christians, we almost feel a sense of guilt if we find ourselves being angry about something or becoming angry about something as if somehow anger in and of itself is wrong and sinful. Look, anger is a God-given emotion, even as happiness is and sadness is or any other human emotion. Look, the reality is the Bible says we're created in the image and the likeness of God. Well, look at God's nature in the Bible. The Bible doesn't say that God never gets angry. The Bible just says that God is slow to anger. But there are numerous times all throughout the word of God where God genuinely gets angry about things. David's gonna talk about that in just the next set of verses in front of us, that God is angry with the wicked and those who do wicked and deceitful and hurtful things. So God himself at times 
is justifiably angry. There is a right time and a right reason to be angry. Quite honestly, there are certain occasions where if your response is that you do not become angry about something, something is wrong with you. In other words, if you can watch some of the evil and unrighteous things that happen among humanity or that people do to other people in selfish, evil, and unkind ways, and that doesn't make you angry, something's not right with you. You don't have the heart of God. Because when God sees certain things happening and people mistreating people and doing wicked and evil and rebellious things, those things make God angry. And if we have the heart of God and God's spirit within us, we should, like God, be vexed in our spirit and at times feel angry about those things as well. There's a righteous anger that's an appropriate anger. What the Bible encourages us is that when we become angry, that anger doesn't begin to control us to a degree where then we react wrongly in anger, letting that emotion drive us to do wrong things in our reactions rather than doing constructive things, which is different, in response. Reacting is where we get into trouble. Responding rightly is what God wants us to do. And so he says, look, be angry, but do not sin. In other words, anger is never a justifiable reason to then do something sinful and wrong in God's sight. There's no justification for that. No matter what the cause of the anger, again, even if someone hurt us or they mistreated us or they did something to us that made us justifiably angry, it does not give us then the right or the entitlement to do something sinful in God's sight to hurt them back or, uh, again, or even to, let's say even we're not hurting them back in a retaliation type you know aspect sometimes people get angry and they think okay well that's my entitlement i'm just going to go out and get drunk then because i'm so angry what my spouse did to me or this so again they, they just almost take it as an entitlement i've been hurt i've been angered i've been wounded so therefore i can just fly off the rails because i'm entitled to behave badly now because somebody really made me angry <laughs> that doesn't work in god's sight he says look be angry but sin not The idea is that anger is to be dealt with in a constructive way, not a destructive way, not in a disobedient way to God, where we let our anger propel us to do something that's sinful and wrong. So he says, look, be angry, but don't sin. Instead, his counsel, meditate, the idea is think through, ponder within your heart, on your bed, and be still. The simplest idea there, very simply, is just this, is, is when you're angry, sometimes it's best to just kind of pray, think it through, let the emotions kind of process a little bit and, and clear out of your system and just sleep on it. Before you go saying something, doing something, reacting in some way, just sleep on it. Let the emotions set a little bit. He says, just meditate on it within your heart, you know, chew on it, think it through, let God give you proper perspective not just in the intense anger of the emotion of the moment think it through he says and just be still wait on that very thing and again you notice these terms that pop up periodically again we see it here selah we're going to see that all throughout the psalms and that term selah is basically just a a hebrew term which just means consider this pause and think about that that's the idea there is periodically you'll see this after something that's stated is is really think upon that think it through Uh, let that be something that you kind of let resonate with you when you see that term say law so again good advice here 
in regards to times when we become angry, how to channel it properly rather than let it misguide us to do something that's displeasing to the Lord or hurtful to others when we find ourselves angry from time to time. And almost as if verse 5 is a companion to that, because this is often what we have to do, right? When we have strong emotion, especially like a strong emotion like anger, he says, offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. Notice, the sacrifices of righteousness, because as I've said many times before, typically doing what's right isn't complicated. It's just hard, right? So when you're really angry because somebody did something to you that has greatly inflamed your emotion in a justifiable way to be very angry, it is a sacrifice, right? It takes a personal sacrifice to deny your own will to deny your own feelings and thoughts and to suppress that in a constructive, self-controlled way and to say, you know what, Lord, I'm going to make a sacrifice unto you of my will in this situation and I'm going to do it because it's a sacrifice of righteousness. I'm going to choose to do what's righteous in this situation rather than just be reactionary or do something for my own fulfillment in the midst of my strong emotion. So again, offering the sacrifices of righteousness because usually, again, it's not complicated or hard to know what to do. It's just hard to carry it out. And so it is indeed a sacrifice when we have to do what's righteous from time to time. But he says we can do that. Why? Because we can put our trust in the Lord. And I don't know about you, but I'll tell you, a lot of times when we take matters into our own hands and we don't make the sacrifice of doing what's righteous, a lot of times connected to that is because we don't trust the Lord, right? So that's what happens. Somebody does something to me and everything in my being is screaming, I deserve to do something back to you or I deserve in self-preservation. I'm not gonna let you take advantage of me. I'm gonna, and all of a sudden we do something to take matters into our own hands. Wait a minute, why are we taking matters into our own hands? Because we don't trust the Lord that he can take care of things. We don't trust the Lord that he can deal with that person or deal with the situation and take care of us. And in a lack of confidence and reliance upon the Lord, we feel like we need to get our hands in there and manipulate. We're going to fix that person or correct that person or put them in their place. Or, and God's saying, wait, what are you doing? You just give me the sacrifice of righteousness. You just do what's righteous and put your trust in me. Just trust the Lord. And the wonderful thing is, is that when we can bring ourselves to actually not just, you know, assent to these things mentally, but actually put them into practice and not just be a hearer, but a doer of the word. It's amazing to see from time to time when we give God a chance to work where we can make a sacrifice to do what's right and pleasing in the sight of the Lord. And we can trust the Lord and to see how God comes through in situations. And how God takes care of us and works on our behalf because we committed our trust to him in a given situation. David says, verse 4, there are many who say, who will show us any good? Lord, he says, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. Lord, they may be saying things to try and question us or to make us lose confidence. But Lord, please, he's saying, lift up your countenance upon us. Put your favor upon us. He says, verse 7, you have put gladness in my heart, now wait a minute, David, I thought you were just angry. Well, he was, but see, when you start praying and processing things with God, it's amazing how God can change your disposition. He could just change your attitude and your heart. And again, in a matter of a few verses, David went from being very angry to now here he's talking about 
the great things of what God has done for him. He says, God, you have put gladness in my heart more than in the season, he says, that their grain and wine increased. Again, notice, in the season when their grain and wine increased, that was the harvest season. When they brought in the harvest, that was a time of great celebration because that was their profit, right? The idea there is, you know, increased profit, increased wealth, prosperity. And so they're excited and they're celebrating. And he says, God, even in the times when man is experiencing the greatest success and prosperity and rejoicing and celebrating and partying, because they'd party hard at harvest time because they had lots of grain and lots of wine. So those were times of great feasting and celebration. But he says, you know what, God, here's what I found. You have put supernaturally gladness in my heart more to be enjoyed than even the greatest parties that all the people out in the world are going to. God, they may party hard and do all kinds of things and try and find ways to have fun and pleasure and enjoyment, but God, you've supernaturally put into my heart a gladness, a joy, a fulfillment, and only the child of God knows that, where God is able to do that. And notice he says, you've put this gladness in my heart. Again, it's a supernatural thing. That's what joy is a reference to. It's a supernatural thing that as we experience God, he can supernaturally put gladness into our heart. The Bible tells us that God can give us, you know, the the oil of joy in the midst of our times of mourning. He can give us the garment of praise, Isaiah says, for the spirit of heaviness and how God can exchange those things, putting into our hearts gladness and joy even in the hardest and difficult times of our life. So David says, in light of that, verse 8, he says, God, I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So God, despite what may be threatening to me, despite what may be something that I should be very concerned about, that could happen, something that seems very intimidating going on in my life right now, He says, God, as an act of confidence, because my trust is in you, I know you've heard my prayer. I know you're going to come to my aid. He says, because times before, God, you've relieved me from my distress. You've done it before, God. So therefore, he says, rather than stay up all night and stress out and not sleep, he says, I'm going to lie down. And notice, I'm not going to lie down and toss and turn all night long. He says, I'm going to lie down in peace and I'm going to go to sleep. I'm going to go to sleep, Lord, because he says, ultimately, I know you alone make me dwell in safety. Boy, I mean, what is the answer in some ways to insomnia? It's trusting the Lord. It's just trusting the Lord and seeking the Lord and laying things at God's feet and believing genuinely that if you've prayed and you've laid it at God's feet, that you don't have to stay up all night and toss and turn and stress about it. You don't have to live in constant panic and anxiousness that plagues so many people. Do you know how many people don't sleep at night or struggle to sleep? Not because it's some physiological reason, but literally it's just psychologically and emotionally and mentally. They are so distressed, so filled with panic, so filled with concern about what if this or what if that or what if this or what if covid or what if i mean and there's all these what ifs that are causing people to be so stressed out when the reality is that god for his people wants to give us peace to be able to lay down and to rest and be at peace and say god because honestly you alone at the end of the day 
You're my safety. You're the only thing that's going to keep me safe. But Lord, I can trust that you love me as a father and that you have power to work in my life in the ways that I never could or no one else ever could. So what a wonderful thing to be able to lie down in peace, to be able to sleep and to know that God is able to make us dwell in safely. Psalm 5, David then begins to turn and to pray once again. He says, give ear to my words, O Lord, and consider my meditation. So notice David starts to pray here. He says, notice in prayer, God not only listens to our words, but he also considers our meditation. So that refers to our thoughts, our unspoken words. So is God listening to my words when I pray? Absolutely. Remember Jesus said, don't pray in vain repetitions, right? Like, like the, the, the religious leaders do or like the heathen do. They just they pray in a way whereby they use just kind of routine formula words in prayer or they just repetitiously say the same things or chants or whatever. And Jesus said, look, don't, don't, don't pray like that. That's not prayer. Jesus said, just go into your closet and talk to your father. Just talk to your father. Don't, don't recite some written out mantras if somehow that's more spiritual, religious. You know, just talk to God like he's your father. God wants to hear your words. He wants to hear you communicate. So he says, God, give ear to my words. And he says, Lord, consider my meditation. In other words, God, the things that are going on in my head and sometimes in my heart. And maybe if you've prayed before, you feel like I don't even know how to articulate what's going on inside of me. And God, you know what I'm thinking, my meditations are. Thankfully, God even knows your thoughts. He knows exactly the words you can express, the things you can't say. That's why I love Romans chapter 8, where it speaks about how God's Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we don't always know how to pray as we ought to pray, but that God's Spirit can help us even in the midst of our groanings and our sighs and the deep things. And it says the Holy Spirit can interpret those things in accordance with what the will of God is for us when we're communicating with him. And how wonderful to know that God hears our words. He's considering even our unspoken things going on in our hearts and in our minds. He says, verse 2, God, please give heed to the voice of my cry. That speaks of his passion in prayer, crying out to the Lord. I think sometimes we need to be open more to passion in our prayers. He says, give heed to the voice of my cry. I'm crying out to you, God. He says, my king, that speaks of God's power and his rulership, and my God, my creator, the one who's in control of my life, for to you I will pray. So he says, God, I'm crying out to you, not to man, not to anyone else, to you, God, I will pray. I'm directing my concern to you. I'm letting you know about my need, expressing to you what's going on in my life. Verse three, he says, my voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord, in the morning I will direct it to you and I will look up. So notice David here indicates that he had this practice, this life discipline of God hearing his voice. Notice he says two times there in the morning. That is, David began his day by seeking God. He began his day, the first part of his day was being conscious of, of God's presence in his life, being conscious of his need for God's help in his life. And he says, God, you shall hear my voice in the morning. In the morning, I'm going to direct my voice to you. That speaks of a measure of discipline. That's a degree of discipline spiritually that David realized, I don't want to just get up and go running through my day. And then when everything starts falling apart, then by lunchtime, 
or at least if not by dinner time, I'm crying out to God because this is spinning out of control now and they got this thing going. He says, no, God, I, I set my day before you as soon as I get up. Lord, here, thank you for being a part of my life. Here's what's going on. Here's what the day in front of me holds. And just beginning to lay out things before the Lord and, and communicating with God first thing in the morning. Just such a wise thing to do. No wonder David became a man the Bible refers to as a man after God's own heart. I mean, no wonder this guy became the spiritual giant with this depth of relationship with God that he was. When you look at verses one through three, I mean, just look at the heart of David there. Give ear to my words, Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my king and my God. For to you I will pray my voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you and I will look up. The idea is I'm going to direct my voice to you. And he says I will look up the end of verse three. The idea of looking up is looking up in expectation. That's when David says, in the morning, you're going to hear my voice directed to you. And then he says, I will look up. The idea is after he directed his words in prayer to God, then he lived the rest of that day looking up in expectancy. All right, God, I prayed about this. I'm expecting you to answer. I'm praying and I'm living in anticipation. Boy, there's a great thing there. Do we just pray to pray? Do we sometimes just pray as a matter of religious routine? We tell God what's going on in our life. But when we're praying, are we then believing expectantly God's going to answer? Are, are we directing our voice to God and then looking up to God and believing, all right, I prayed, I believe God's going to move. I'm anticipating God's going to act. I prayed for this. So as I go through this day, I'm walking through it in a measure of confidence. I believe God's going to work. I believe God's, that, that's the faith component of prayer. And David here, he says, I live expectantly in anticipation looking to the Lord. What a great way to live our lives in relationship to God and to remember that there's something very valuable about doing this in the morning, seeking God in the morning. Again, it's not a matter of being legalistic. As long as we spend some time with God during the day and remain devotional with him, I think that's important. However, there is something to be said and there's something scriptural as a principle to be noted about seeking God in the morning. First, not giving in the last or leftovers of our day, but seeking God at the beginning of our day. And that makes our day many times go in a much more spiritually healthy direction. He says, verse four, for you are not a God, notice, who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. That is, God won't tolerate evil in his presence, which is a great reminder there. Nor shall evil dwell with with you for people to think they can live as evil and ungodly as they want and it just works out and we all go to heaven in the end you need to read the bible a little better the bible says right there evil can't dwell with god why can't people go to heaven in and of themselves apart from the righteousness of god given to us through jesus christ's salvation as a gift being washed and cleansed because evil cannot be in God's presence. God cannot allow evil in his presence. He's holy, he's righteous, he's just. David understood this. God, you're not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. Humanity might, but God doesn't. And he says, evil can't dwell with you. The boastful, he says, shall not stand in your sight. Again, certainly those who would boast in their own righteousness. He goes on to say, you hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors 
bloodthirsty and deceitful men. Now, the indication there is God abhors and, and God hates the things that these people are doing, the iniquity that they're doing, the falsehood that they're you know, speaking, those who are lying and being deceitful, those who are bloodthirsty and, again, harming people, ruining lives. These are things that God is not just displeased with. The Bible says that God hates and abhors those things. Again, that's strong language. But again, it goes to show you that there are things that greatly displease God and that God actually works in direct opposition against. David says, you seek to destroy and to stop those who are doing these things. Verse seven, he says, but as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. David understood that's the only reason he could approach God was that God would be merciful to him because David knew he was a sinner just as much as any other. That's why he says, verse seven, in fear of you, that is reverence, I will worship toward your holy temple. He prays, verse eight, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. So realizing that David had people around him in his life who were enemies that were trying to misguide him, to discourage him, to try and get him off track in his life. He begins to cry out for God's leading and God's direction, that God would make his way straight and evident before his face so that David could walk in that. And David understood that there would always be those enemies in his life that would threaten him from following the will of God and the plan of God for his life. So he's saying, lead me, Lord. And look, in our lives, whether it's physical enemies that David perhaps was dealing with, or we don't know, maybe David's referring as well to the enemies like you and I have, sometimes our own internal enemies. Sometimes we're our own worst enemy, are we not? Our own thoughts and our own feelings and the things that we've done to cause problems for ourselves. And we find ourselves then facing enemies of guilt and confusion, enemies of you know idols in our lives and things that would distract us from God's will. And sometimes we need to pray the same thing. Lord, please lead me, lead me, Lord. Make your way straight before my face. Lord, make it impossible for me not to know what your will is. Make it clear for me, Lord. I want to walk in your path. Make your way straight before my face. Pray that many times. I think it's a great prayer for all of us. He says, verse 9, for there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels, cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. Paul picks up on these verses in Romans chapter three to describe the guilt of all of humanity. He quotes here from Psalm five, verses nine and 10. Verse 11, he says in contrast, but let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them what a wonderful thing to know god defends us he's our protector we don't have to defend ourselves vengeance is mine the lord says i will repay and god is our defender and our protector and so we can rejoice when everyone else is doing what they're doing we can rejoice because we're trusting in the lord we can shout for joy when others are crying for misery we can be grateful and joyful because of who the lord is he says let all those who love your name, notice, be joyful in you. Can't always be joyful in circumstances, right? I don't know about you, but I find that's getting more and more difficult, it seems, day after day. 
to be joyful in what's going on in the world, but we can always be joyful in the Lord. You can always find things to rejoice about in just who God is. He says, verse 12, For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor you will surround him as a shield. What a beautiful Bible promise. You, O Lord, will bless the righteous. You and I are righteous, not because of our own righteousness, because the God of our righteousness through Christ has made us righteous. If David would say that, and he didn't have the righteousness of Christ, how much more are you and I the righteous? And to know that God wants to put his blessing upon your life, to bless the righteous when you live right in the sight of the Lord, and with favor, with favor, he's going to surround you as with a shield. How wonderful to have not only God shielding us, but to know that his favor is surrounding our lives, his good hand of favor being upon us. Psalm 6, let's look at this last psalm. It's a short one. David here seems to be expressing a time in his life when he had failed and he's working through some of his difficulties of his own sin and regrets. Some believe David wrote this in response to perhaps the time when he failed in his sin of immorality with Bathsheba and then lied, of course, and tried to cover up his sin for a season and then ultimately, remember, had Uriah, her husband, murdered to try and cover up his sins, so he committed you know, sexual sin, adultery, murder, deceit. He was lying to everyone who cared about him and around him in his life, living in a hidden way, covering his sin. And he struggled with that because he knew that God saw it all. Though no one else may have known for a season till it came forth, God saw it all and it was impacting his life in a very heavy way. So whether it was that time or just another occasion, it seems Psalm 6, David's expressing some of the experiences of when we have sinned against the Lord or we're living in sin before the Lord and we haven't yet dealt with it properly, the impact it has upon us. Look what David says, verse 1. He says, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Now that is a sign of spiritual maturity even when a person has failed in sin. David doesn't say, Lord, I know I've sinned, just give me a pass. No consequences, God. I just want to say I'm sorry and let me just go on and do, 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 do. Oh, there you go. I admitted it and now I just want to go on and forget about it. David doesn't say that. David says, Lord, I'm not asking you not to rebuke me, but he's saying, please, Lord, don't rebuke me in your anger and don't chasten, correct, discipline me in your hot displeasure. In other words, Lord, I deserve to be rebuked. Please rebuke me because I deserve to be rebuked after what I've done so wrongly. Lord, I deserve to be challenged and confronted in my heart. And Lord, I deserve to be chastened to a degree because consequences are corrective tools that you use to protect us from ever going down those same wrong trails again. So Lord, chasten me, but just please don't chasten me in your severe hot displeasure. He said, just Lord, have mercy, please. If you gave me the full brunt of your chastening and discipline, I'd be destroyed, God. So please, Lord, he says, just chasten me, but not in your hot displeasure. What does he cry out for? Verse two, have mercy on me, for I am weak. That is, I'm frail, God, before you. Oh, Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. That is, my inward life is all troubled and stirred up in agitation. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, he says, how long? How long, Lord, am I going to struggle in this inward 
agitation of my spirit being troubled within, he says. But again, look what David's describing. This was what he felt like as the repercussion of sin. Inwardly, David was a mess. It's a mess. But see, that's what sin does. Sin doesn't just bring circumstantial problems or hurts or difficulties. The bigger issue of what sin does is it brings challenges and distress and guilt and shame and mental trouble and emotional trouble and worse, spiritual trouble that wounds us deep on the inside as we process that. And especially David describes in Psalm 32 how he felt like, remember he says, the heavy hand of the Lord was suppressing him until he finally acknowledged and dealt with his sin. As long as he tried to keep it secret and keep it going, he said, God, I felt like your hand was always weighing down upon me heavy. I felt so troubled inside. And it seems David is kind of maybe describing some of that here. And he's saying, Lord, please heal me, Lord. I'm so troubled, greatly troubled in my soul. How much longer, Lord? Verse four, he says, return, O Lord, deliver me. Save me for your mercy's sake. And just crying out to God for mercy and deliverance in the midst of what he had done for in death he says there's no remembrance of you in the grave who will give you thanks so what david's saying is lord i know i've done wrong but please lord have mercy deliver me from my failures and the trouble i brought upon myself and he's saying lord i'm asking you to do that and though look david says in death there's no remembrance of you what's david acknowledging he knew the things he had done were capital crimes in israel According to Old Testament law, David should have died. You do realize that. Adultery and murder were capital crimes according to the Mosaic law. David knew if God was just, if God gave him justice, he should have died. He should have been put to death. Doesn't mean he couldn't be forgiven. Doesn't mean he couldn't go to hell. But he should have lost his life. So anything beyond not losing his life was God's mercy in his life. And David was humbled by that reality. And what I sense David saying here in verse five is, Lord, in death, there's no remembrance of you and in the grave. Who can give you thanks? The idea is David saying, Lord, I'm asking, please give me mercy. Please give me the restrained version because God, if you do, I can be a thankful, humble servant of yours to give testimony to others that though I failed so greatly, you're merciful. And God, you're still good and you still brought something valuable and brought beauty out of my ashes. And he says, God, if you just kill me, I can't give testimony to that. I can't tell others about how wonderful you are. And David, what did he want to do? He wanted to even glorify God out of his failures and shortcomings. God, I'm willing to acknowledge my failures and my shortcomings if that is a way I can give thanks to you and testimony of your greatness to other people. What an amazing thing. David's more concerned about God's honor than his own preference in the midst of the things that he had done wrong in his life. He says, verse six, I'm weary with my groaning. All night long, he says, I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with tears. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. Again, do you sense? Look, David says, I'm groaning. I'm weeping. All night long, my eye wastes away because of grief. Do you notice David's broken over his sin? He's crying continuously. He's shedding tears. Again, there wasn't this kind of cavalier, callous attitude. There was genuine brokenness. 
The Bible tells us that David himself says in Psalm 51, these, are things, these things, O God, you won't despise, a broken and a contrite spirit. That's what God wants. David knew there was no sacrifice he could bring to atone for adultery. There was no sacrifice you could bring to atone for murder. The only sacrifice David could bring to God was a genuine broken heart with tears coming down his face and a genuine sadness and grief over what he had done that was a real demonstration of his repentance. And that's what God found pleasure in. And that's what God honored in David's life. And again, here, interesting to see, you know, grieving, weeping. Would to God that we would have that kind of response of our own sin from time to time, that we would have that much of a broken heart, just a beautiful thing when someone comes to that place over their own mistakes and failures from time to time as we all have in each and every one of our lives, especially in light of how merciful God is to us. You know, just, again, God sees our tears. Here David describes weeping, crying. Again, this is this strong man, and yet he wept, showing you that there was a balance in his life. He says, verse 8, Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed greatly troubled and let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly you have to wonder if david's enemies weren't perpetually saying see that david that's the end of you you failed and i'm sure his enemies would love to say see that you are a failure you're a wretch you've ruined your life you don't deserve to be on the throne you have completely destroyed everything good god did in your life and everything good god could have done in your life and i'm sure there were lots of enemy voices saying that and David says here in confidence, because he knew that God was greater than the lying voices of his enemies. He says, depart from me, all you lying voices, all you enemies. He says, I know the Lord has heard my prayer. The Lord has heard. And the Lord will answer. The Lord will give mercy to me, he says. The Lord will receive my prayer. He's heard my supplication. And David ends on a note of confidence. And what's his confidence in? God and God's mercy. But that's really where our confidence should always be because though we are frail and make mistakes and though, again, lying voices, not only outside of us, but in our head at times want to drive us into just utter despair, how wonderful to realize that we can have confidence in who God is, in his greatness and his mercy and what he offers.